It all started out as a mild curiosity in the junkyard. And now, it's the Doctor Who podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 62 of the Doctor Who podcast. And this time around, we had some good news and some bad news. The good news is that Trev's back. Hello, Trev. Hello. How you going? And the bad news is that Tom's not here. So we've got Trev back, but the quality, I'm afraid, has just walked out the door. Tom, unfortunately, is busy <laughs> this week. <laughs> and so, yeah, you've just got uh, Trev. And you still got me. It's a shame Tom can't be here, but Tom, we're thinking of you, mate. Yes, Tom, we want you back next week, mate. Come on. Absolutely. So uh, how, how are things after your aquatic adventures in, in Brisbane? Well, I, I think Brisbane is slowly recovering. I mean, you know, probably all the listeners know that we had some quite bad floods in, in Queensland uh, during January. And apparently there's a cyclone on the way as well, too. Uh, oh, or, really? or two cyclones, I believe. So I mightn't be back next week. So who knows what will happen. But um, at the moment, we're dry. I'm beginning to wonder whether our natural disasters are something that are unique to to, to Trevor, because um, a little while ago I found on the internet some kind of horrific, you know, story of doom, um, with a whole load of scientists predicting there was going to be more, well, I think they described it as an airborne river about to completely release its contents on Los Angeles, when you and I are going to be there. So we've had floods so far in Brisbane with you, and not so far away from you in New Zealand, there's been earthquakes, and now we're going to go along to Los Angeles, and we're going to have some other kind of natural disaster. So uh, I know. Wonderful. If you see Kurt Russell hanging around LA in a leather jacket and an eye patch, um, <laughs> it's, it's time to get out very quickly. But yeah, it, the, these natural disasters do seem to be following me around. They, I don't know, but... Uh, Fingers crossed that LA will be okay, yes, yes. Let's get on with uh, the natural disaster of our own making with episode 62. <laughs> what have we got coming up in the next half an hour or so, Trev? Well, in today's episode, we are going to be having a bit of, bit of a natter about River Song. Just who is River Song? Now, um, if, if any of our listeners have checked out the DWP forums, and if you haven't, why not? There's a, an incredibly long thread going there at the moment, which has been going since April last year, discussing just who... River Song is, and there's some incredible theories in there that we want to share with you mm. in today's podcast. And uh, also on the uh, classic Doctor Who side of things, we want to review the Seeds of Doom DVD release, which I think has been out for you know probably three or four months now, but uh, we've only just got round to watching it and enjoying the extras and enjoying the story all over again. So that, I think that's kind of what we got going today, haven't we, James? Yeah, pretty much it, I think. Um, we've had some contact from um, a couple of our wonderful listeners, and again, they're members of our forums that Trevor mentioned earlier, and that's particularly relevant, as you'll find out in a second. And I just want to say thank you very much indeed to a couple of our listeners. First of all, Michelle Simmons. Now, Michelle Simmons has returned to the Doctor Who podcast archives a full, uncut, original version of Spume of Destiny. And this is the WhoCast brought to you by Time Lord Magazine, episode 354.
threw me for six this episode, the spume of destiny, was Rose's baby Susan. The revelation of the name. Wow. I mean, if there's a more amazing last five minutes of any episode, I'd like to see it because it just throws up so many questions and so many possibilities for the season finale. I mean, we'd need a five-hour podcast just to cover them. Is Rose's baby Susan the same Susan that travels with the first Doctor, i.e. his granddaughter? Smart money, is Is the father of Susan the human 10th Doctor that we saw um, many, many years ago, the, the, the one that went with Rose to the alternate universe. My mind is just spinning with all these possibilities about what's going to happen. And, of course, the episode didn't resolve them because the, one of the last scenes has the uh, John Sims master throwing Rose's baby into the gravity well and the uh, Doctor diving after her, firing his energy weapon to speed up his descent so he could try and save her. Um, oh, Incredible. Tense. I mean, there's very oh, tense. There's, there's, Matt, there's... Matt's acting in that. Did you um, when when the the baby's name was shouted at him across the the pit where the gravity well is? His his face just for a moment of confusion and then realization, and then having to dive straight in while he was trying to assimilate that information. Mm. Very tense. It's just that whole revelation about Susan has really thrown up the possibility of who really is Susan. And it really looks like the Matt Smith Doctor, one of his final acts, is going to be delivering this young Susan to the first Doctor in some way. I mean, did you get that impression when you saw the uh, Doctor's ring on the, uh, on the um, uh, console of the TARDIS there at the beginning of the episode that they were sort of hinting that there was going to be something to do with the first Doctor and Susan? Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't um, pick that up the first, first time I watched it. I think someone mentioned it on, on, the, um, on the forum. Um, I had to go back in and have a look at it. Now, that, just to give you a bit of background, so those of you who have absolutely no idea what we're talking about, uh, when Trev, Marty and I were on the DWO WhoCast... Um, and it has to be said, I had very little to do with this. Trev and Marty come up with a fantastic April Fool episode. I think it was called episode 354, and it was set about six yep. or seven years in the future, if, if, if memory serves. And it was basically Marty and Trev just making up stuff off the top of their head, and which, which I have to say came incredibly naturally to the pair of you. And uh, <laughs> it's something that went out, and it went down brilliantly with the listeners, and unfortunately, that particular episode is no longer on the DWO site. And for some reason, the three of us didn't keep a copy of that recording. So no, we've been after no. it in the same way that Doctor Who fans try and get, I don't know, the remaining um, episodes of Web of Fear for the last few months now. And Michelle's come up with the goods and we've now got a, uh, a full-length version of that podcast. So... Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Michelle. And um, we'll have to think about doing something with it, Trev, perhaps sticking it on the end of a future DWP or something. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's it's amazing. Um, you know, when, when you finally get to hear it, perhaps, listeners, um, you know, we might put it up on the feed or something like that. Um, it's amazing how many of the predictions that we made in that episode, because I think we were reviewing the, the last season of Matt Smith, which was like season 10 or 11 or something like that. Mm. And one of the penultimate episodes was called The Spume of Destiny. So it's it's amazing when I listened back to it the other day, just how many things could actually possibly come true 
in real Doctor Who. So um, either we were just incredibly lucky or we had incredible foresight on our side. I think the former is more likely. But yes, Michelle, thank you very much. Name your price. Name your price. (laughs) Well, Michelle's coming to Gallifrey and uh, she's already said that she's going to be sitting in the audience on your panel, Trev. So uh, you've got at least one supporter there. You'll have one person at your panel. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, We've received one piece of feedback from Cathy Ryan and I want to just go through this before we get stuck into the, uh, the meat and potatoes of this particular podcast. Um, When Tom and I reviewed the Christmas special, or last year's Christmas special, we had a conversation about how accessible Matt Smith is to this slightly older Doctor Who fan, and this is what Cathy's picked up on. And she says, Greetings, James, Trevor and Tom. You asked in one of your shows how over 40 viewers see the 11th Doctor. Well, the 4th and the 3rd Doctors are my favourite in that order. My next favourite is the 11th Doctor, Matt Smith, closely followed by the 2nd. Although I liked Eccleston, I never connected with David Tennant's Doctor. Too human and too full of himself. Matt Smith is wonderful, reminding me of a combination in turn of the second and the fourth Doctors, and even a homage to the third as he steals his outfit from the hospital staff changing room. Companion-wise, I dislike Amy Pond's constant throwing herself at the Doctor. Rory is dull but necessary. Yeah, I think that's my role on DWP as well. Uh, Riversong, however, is brilliant in every respect and has great chemistry with the Doctor. Matt Smith seems to connect so well with children. Wouldn't it be nice to have a couple of kids as his companions, like the second Doctor? And I just thought, yeah, that's perfect. Once again, it's precisely what I was looking for in terms of feedback. And it's interesting because it's a slightly different view. I would have thought Matt Smith would have been harder for older fans. And I'm sorry for calling post-40-year-olds older, but let's face it, we probably are these days. I, I just think it's harder for us to res- you know, get involved in Matt Smith's Doctor. Lots of people have said that. But what, what do you think, Trev? Is that an interesting piece of feedback there for you too? Sure, I, I think he's very bang on the money. I mean, if, if we take out the third Doctor having an influence on Matt Smith merely because of the costume... I think the the combination of the childlike fourth Doctor and the almost, I, I suppose to a certain extent, while the second Doctor was a bit of a buffoon and a comic, he, he was a very fatherly figure. I mean, his interactions with Victoria and his very um, paternal instincts towards Jamie, I suppose. If, if you mix in the second and fourth Doctors there... I think you end up with Matt Smith. So that, that, that is quite an interesting bit of feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I completely agree with um, with Amy throwing herself at the Doctor. That's something that, of course, you didn't get mm. in the second Doctor with, uh, with Victoria. But, uh, yeah, very good comparison. Very well thought out bit of feedback. Thank you very much, Cathy. Maybe if they ever kill Rory off in the show, then they can show his tombstone and it can just say, dull but necessary. Well, the next thing we'd like to chat about is is a wonderful little thing that dropped into uh, James's mailbox, not his electronic mailbox, but his real, you know, hole-in-the-front-door mailbox, <laughs> a copy of, of a wonderful new fanzine called Panic Moon. Mm. Now, one of the great things about Panic Moon is it tries to capture, I think, the spirit and the feel and the look of classic fanzines from the 70s and 80s. Panic Moon really tries to capture the essence of what fanzines were about back during the classic era. Yeah, I think you're right. It's certainly an attempt to recreate that era 
of um, well the pre-internet era really of fandom where fanzines were oh there were two plenty i mean you, you go down the fitzroy tavern 10 15 years ago and you thrust into your hand on several occasions were missives uh, written by fans and some of them are a bit more professional than others and certainly panic moon is i would say one of the best fanzines that i've seen in a very very long time um one of the unique factors or one of the unique things about this publication is that it's a six in size so we're talking about pamphlet size and when i first heard this i thought nah that's not going to work it's going to be too small something that fits in your back pocket is not going to be you know readable the font's going to be far too small etc but it really isn't bad you know it, it, it's a really good read it's very easy to read and um for me i i just thoroughly enjoy reading all of these different articles it's 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 slightly more in depth i would say than the i don't know the more commercial um official magazines like the two um like doctor who magazine and like doctor who adventures but it's 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 fan produced for fans and the analysis in it is really good and and i really like the pictures as well i've got to say i think the illustrations in it are, are, are excellent you took the words right out of my mouth there, James. It's, it's by fans for fans because it, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to see a copy as well too from a uh, someone locally who'd bought it. And it just reminded me so much because I, I was heavily involved with fanzine production oh, probably in the mid to late 80s. Um, I, I co-edited a Brisbane fanzine called Misfall for our local club, which had a quite long history. And it, it reminded me a lot of the other Australian fanzines. I mean, some of which like Data Extract, Chameleon Factor, Mags, all those sort of things, which were like little A5 or A4 folder bits of paper done on a typewriter or a primitive word processor with like sticky taped in pictures or something like that and mm. then photocopied at the local university. It really bought that back. I mean, I think that's something that's really missing these days because everyone's got access to the, you know, the desktop publishing and, you know, the amazing word processors and image processors and we end up with fanzines that look professional and there's really a gap in the market, I think, that needs a fanzine that captures what I suppose an ordinary fan might write, you know, just something mm. in one afternoon and then photocopy it, you know, down at the local office works or whatever and then, you know, sort of mail it out to, to subscribers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is, um, oh, it's, it benefits from having modern technology and modern production values, but it deliberately goes back to trying to recreate something that was done in the very same way that you've just described, Trev, on the photocopier, yes. etc. Yes. And um, I'd, I'd very much recommend anyone go and grab a copy of this. It, it does cost. Uh, there is a cost to it. It's pound twenty per edition um, if you're based in the UK, and that's including postage as well. Elsewhere in Europe, is £2. And outside Europe is £2.50. So irrespective of where you're based in the world, this is not going to set you back, you know, a second mortgage or anything. And I, I would certainly say take a look at one particular edition because it is a very, very good publication. And, uh, yeah, I would say hats off to you, Oliver, who's the, the editor of this and got in contact with us yeah. because it's, um, you know, we, we do see quite a lot of uh, fan-produced things and very few of them actually make us think, well, we want to talk about this on the show. Uh, but I would say mm. that you're actually missing something um, if, if, you, uh, if you don't take a look at this. You can go and have a look at the magazine in, in terms of what it offers and each edition's contents at this URL. It's tinyurl.com forward slash panic moon 
And uh, yeah, I thoroughly recommend that you go and check it out. Back in the eighties, I, I did a very similar thing that we that we did a few fanzines, like just one-off issues that were, I suppose, homages to sixties and seventies, like with all the bad typography and all that sort of stuff. Ours were total spoofs, but <laughs> right. you know, we did one on the first Doctor called Speak Up Sunny. And we did one on the uh, fifth Doctor called Adventures in Time and Animal Husbandry. Don't ask me why it was called that. We set out to recreate the look and feel of these early fanzines. And, and we even went as far as making one look like it was done on a typewriter that had one letter that reproduced a letter slightly above all the other letters. So it looked oh, like it was like a slightly wonky typewriter. So yeah. Panic Moon really, really struck a chord for me. It, it, it made me sort of sit down and actually pull out those old fanzines and go, wow. Those were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> nice little nostalgia trip there, Oliver. Thank you very much indeed. Well, as we said at the beginning of the episode, um, we've been watching with interest a, a, a fantastic little thread that has been growing like a crinoid on our um, <laughs> DWP forums. Our members on there have been talking about just who is River Song because it seems like Series 6 is going to be giving us a little bit more backstory as to just who River Song is and ever since Matt Smith came on board our forums have been abuzz with theories and counter theories and arguments and discussions about just who this lady is just what is her relationship with the doctors that she's met and we thought it'd be a little bit of fun just to have a bit of a chat here for a couple of minutes on the dwp and bring some of those theories to you our wonderful listeners so uh yeah where do we begin because there's just so much in that thread well i i think just just to list off a few of the suggestions that we've had so far i'm not actually sure whether or not there are any characters or returning characters into Doctor Who who it has not been suggested that Riversong actually is so we've had Riversong is the Doctor Riversong is Captain Jack Riversong is Amy Riversong is Romana Riversong is the TARDIS Riversong is the speck of dirt on the TARDIS console scanner screen um you know it's if you look hard enough on the in fact you don't even need to dig very deep you can find a theory to support that Riversong is absolutely anybody um, so I'd quite like to start with perhaps the one that I think has got the most ugh, credit, if you like. It's, it's it's the one that I think we can, you know, not dismiss instantaneously. And this is the Captain Jack theory. And uh, there's a couple of reasons as to why people seem to think that this is uh, this is possible. First of all, in the long game, in Christopher Eccleston's very first series, there is a news article, if you like, broadcast on one of the TV stations on Satellite 5 saying that the face of Bro is pregnant once again. Therefore, you know, that means that uh, the face of Bo could actually be female. So at some point when Jack did morph into this large head, he also changed genders. So you never know, that, that's, that's the foundations, if you like, of, uh, of that theory. Secondly, Captain Jack and River Song are very similar in nature. If you look at a lot of their lines, you know, a lot of the one-liners, you could quite easily interchange. And I don't think Stephen Moffat is such a bad writer whereby he would, you know, have such shallow characters where you could just interchange dialogue very, very easily. And of course, the last thing is that Stephen Moffat created both characters and he's got a habit 
of not just creating characters for one or two episodes. He does bring them back. He gives them a longer arc. You look at mm. Rory and Amy in particular, their arc and their story, you know, is going to clearly um, expand beyond season five and televised Doctor Who that we've seen. So what do you think of that, Trev? I mean, there are some drawbacks that we'll talk about, you know, there are some flaws, but what do you think of that one? Discuss the drawbacks first, I think, because then, because then we can have a proper meaty discussion. Because I've I've got my own ideas, which probably slightly cross some of your own theories as well. I suppose that you know, mm. to, to perhaps tie them all together. Okay, well, I think the and again, I haven't given this an incredible amount of thought, but I think that the biggest flaw here is is timeline. Now, when River Song meets the Doctor in well, we think. In a doctor's um, timeline, it's for the first time in silence in the library. That's right, isn't it? Yep. She uh, she does know him. She knows him really, really well. And uh, does that mean that River Song comes before or after Jack? If it's true, well, it it's interesting too because um, I do believe that River Song could have some link to Jack, but I also think to solve the time conundrums, I think she also has a link to the Rani. <laughs> and I also think that as a result of that and also some of the events, I think in, in, in Time of Angels where the cleric was talking to Riversong about mm. does the Doctor know who you really are, I think, and has been expanded on our forums, I think it's a fantastic idea that the Rani has done something to Jack, whether she's killed him or something like that or, or, or done some sort of genetic type of thing, that has fused them together. So they are they are kind of the same person. That can then quite easily lead on to Riversong slash Jack becoming the face of Bo and then tying in with your pregnancy wow. theory yeah, as well. Yeah, it does tie in a little bit. I see what you mean. And, you know, I, I, I had struggle to accept that Stephen Moffat will bring back a classic series character like the Rani, you know, in... My my fan gene says yes, that would be fantastic. But if I'd been watching this program since either two thousand and five or two thousand and ten, and all of a sudden we get a lot of exposition, or you know, uh, in, in storytelling terms, it would have to be done very very innovatively. You'd have to have a whole episode dedicated yeah. to who the Rani was, yeah. etc., for it to make sense. I just don't think they're going to go there. I agree with you that it would have to be done differently. But I think one thing that really tipped it for me was. When I first read about the Rani theory and I started tying things together, I couldn't stop thinking about her two appearances in the classic era, Mark of the Rani and Time and the Rani. And I thought, no, there's no way I can possibly give any countenance to this new idea while thinking of those two, um, I mean, especially Time and the Rani, my God, terrible stories. Why would you want to bring back a character that is barely known and one of her two stories is, is probably one of the worst examples of Doctor Who ever? I think what they would do is they would bring back the Rani, but you're not really meant to think about her appearances in the classic era. And I think that's what they've done to a certain extent with the Master, that, sure, he's he's a classic series villain, he's got his fair share of some quite dud stories, that, you know, I mean, there's some of the Ainley Master stories that aren't that good, really. You're not really meant to be thinking about the classic era interpretation, but... I think they can really do something interesting with the Rani because I think one of the other theories that interests me about Jack being a time agent, I also think Riversong is a time agent. Now, I think both of them are time agents because both of them, due to this genetic thing that might be going on, whatever way they explain it, 
Rani is a time agent because she's a time lord or a time lady. So therefore she's fallen into this particular job and then, you know, the whole sequence of events has taken place. And it seems to solve, to a certain extent, the time conundrums, like you mentioned about River Song's last thing she sees is the David Tennant Doctor. So it's yeah. difficult to then fit Jack into the equation as well. Mm, no, very much so. I, I think that's interesting, but I think it opens up an even wider issue and problem for Moffat, really, because he's then got to try and explain why, you know, there are more Time Lords knocking around. Now, I know time can be rewritten, and you know, has been hammered home to us time and time again, and what that really means is that Russell T. Davis' garbage can be rewritten. But I just wonder to what extent he's going to unravel the fact that the Doctor is the last of the Time Lords. And if you suddenly have Riversong, a Time Agent, possible Time Lord, you never know, there's Rani in there. The Rani comes back, the Master comes back. It's a case of saying, yes, the Doctor is the last of the Time Lords, except this person, this villain, and this other person who we might bring back at a later point. And how many times can you bring back other Time Lords before the whole last of the Time Lord thing is completely discredited? Well, I think, like I said, I think if you disregard the Rani classic series appearances and they treat the return of the Rani not as a Time Lady, but someone who's had that history in the past of being a Gallifreyan, but now she is River Song. She's Jack. She's going to be, mm. you know, the face of Bo at some point. That <laughs> while while she might have that heritage of being a Gallifreyan, she's doing that same, you know, clever pocket watch hiding thing that the Master was doing, oh, that the Doctor right. used yeah. as well. Yeah. That that we may see a different spin on that. That that the Rani's been able to hide due to whatever reason, and you know that whole sequence can then take place. Oh, it's, it's well put it this way when I first started this conversation with you it was a case of no I mean I still really believe it I think Riversong is a standalone character in her own right and that she's not going to have any links with any other characters however even with our brief chat here I think well yeah it would actually be really good <laughs> um, if some of what you're saying is correct and um, I, I mean I'm interested I'm interested in your point about um disconnecting classic fans memories of the Rani and time of the Rani and Mark of the Rani etc and, and and the way that you said that they did that with the master to a degree and, and and I do agree because the master is such a completely different character in a new series as as compared to the old however in Utopia you actually hear Ainley's voice you hear Eric Roberts voice making that very clear yeah. link um not just ethereal in fans minds but making it canon making it very clear that this is the same character. No, that's that's fine. That those little voice snippets were there for the fans. They were there for people like us to get very excited and go, <laughs> "Yes, this is the the definite link to the classic series even if they did include the Eric Roberts bit." Stephen Moffat can do something really interesting with the Rani while not really having to dwell on classic series Doctor Who. And I think in the same way that RTD did something interesting with the master while not really having to dwell on the fact that, uh, you know, there's that 40 years of history there already with Ainley and Beavers and Pratt and uh, and Delgado. I mean, I guess because we're in the realms of complete fantasy, we can try and make anything apply <laughs> here. And uh, I wonder, as you were saying earlier in the episode, you know, when we listen back to this podcast in another year or so, and we think, what on earth were we on at that particular point? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> because it will probably be a very straightforward solution. I, I don't think they're going to come out with a, a, a massive amount of backstory about River Song. It will be a case of River Song is 
them and therefore all the rest of it makes sense and this is clearly something that Moffat's been plotting for a long time not making it up as he goes along like RTD did with the four knocks in the master's head or whatever you know i think this is plans this is tidier one of the other theories floating around on the forums is that river song is romana now i'm i mean i probably changed my mind a bit after we've talked about river song and and the rani because the idea of river song being romana i think just becomes a lot more fanciful now i think because there's no real evidence reason or whatever for them to be the same person so what are you saying you're now more skeptical that it's romana or well it it's it's funny because because last week i was sort of thinking yeah maybe it could be it would be a nice way to put romana back into the show you know maybe make a casual reference to e-space perhaps or something like that and that use that as an excuse to get her back into the show but we've been talking about the Rani so much that I, I can't really think of any good reason why Romana should come back. I, I don't think Romana will come back. And again, I I, I kind of have, would have a difficult time accepting that this character is the same as that which we saw portrayed by um, Lala Walden-Meritan because she's just so different. And I know characters mellow with time, etc., but... One of the absolute joys of the character of Romana was that she was quite stuck up and she was a little bit of a, a snob sometimes. And you can't say that about River Song. And neither neither could I accept Romana calling a Dr. Sweetie at any point. It's just it just <laughs> doesn't work, you know. I mean I like I like the idea of seeing Romana in all honesty, I think I would like the idea of seeing any classic companion worked back into the series provided it's done really well but i don't see why we have to see them as a completely unrecognizable seemingly different character to start with and yeah by all means bring romana back but if they do that let's bring lala wall back you know <laughs> why, why do we have to have it in a form of alex kingston river song i think is a strong enough character in her own rights rather than to have to have a successful arc because she's got such a history with classic who who do you think River Song is, ladies and gentlemen of the Doctor Podcast listenership? Um, let us know, not by email, but jump on the forums. If you haven't become a member already, please do. Get on the forums, find the thread. It's called River Song Is dot dot dot. Shouldn't be too hard to find. Um, get on there and voice your opinion about who you think River Song is. Do you agree with us? Do you agree with the forums? Let's find out. From the dawn of podcasting, we came, moving silently down through the RSS feeds, managing many secret Twitter accounts, struggling to reach the time of Gallifrey One, when the few who are willing will battle to the last. No one has ever known we were among you, because apparently we don't publicize our podcasts well enough, but that's not the point. The point is, there's going to be a nerd fight throwdown at Gallifrey One, and I need your help. The Doctor Who Podcast and Staggering Stories are going to meet mano a mano a mano a mano. It's a two-on-two, no-holds-barred trivia fight, and I need your questions because I'm moderating. Please send me your best, your most difficult, your most gnarly television episode-based trivia question. That's right, they've all got to be tied to televised Doctor Who. Email me your questions and your answers 
to quiz at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com. That's quiz at TwoMinuteTimeLord.com. I'll take the best questions, put them together, and fling them at the Doctor Who podcast and Staggering Stories contestants, and we'll see who walks out of Gallifrey 1 alive. Send in those questions. I need them by February 10th. Okay, as Trev said at the top of the episode, we're going to be taking a look at a classic era story, The Seeds of Doom, that was recently released on DVD. And I think in many fans' opinions, it was quite overdue a release as well. If you look at the uh, the polls that they do each year in Doctor Who magazine, one of the particular categories is which story would you most want to see released on DVD? And Seeds of Doom has consistently come towards the uh, the top of that chart. So... It was with some excitement, I have to say, that I popped this into my DVD player probably about two months or so ago now and uh, watched what I remembered as being an extremely good story. What you have done could result in the total destruction of all life on this planet. What is a crinoid? I suppose you would call it a galactic weave. It's as if he's turning into some sort of a hideous monster. I'm sending you on a little errand, Scorby. Where is the pod? Scorby! If we don't find that pod before it germinates, it'll be the end of everything. Everything, you understand? Even your pension. You're full of good ideas, Doctor. People are replaceable, Scorby. The crinoid is unique. You want me to die? There is no chance! Miss Smith will be our subject. No! Well, you've left that juicy dangler there, as Tom would say. Is is it still what you remember it? That's that's what ah, I'm dying to know. Okay, um, no, <laughs> I, I had I had very very good memories of Seeds of Doom, and I remember getting my VHS copy um, all those years ago now. And of course, that was the first time that I'd seen that story too. So I think this is only the second time I've ever seen this six-parter all the way through. And with a couple of exceptions, and we'll talk about those later perhaps, I did not enjoy this story. Oh, well, that that is incredible. Because for me, Seeds of Doom gets better and better and better every time I watch it. Now, one of the things I love about TV and movies is not only when you watch something that you recognise that it's really good, but I think one of the hallmarks for me of a good TV show or a good movie is you think what you're watching is real. It's actually real life. Now, I think Seeds of Doom is one of those Doctor Who stories that falls into that category for me. It's done with such conviction. It's done with such class. It's done with such incredible intelligence that you're watching it and you're almost shouting at the screen, you know. You, I mean, you're almost shouting at Chase. You know, you're an evil dude. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're 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 shouting at the poor members of the Arctic base. Look out behind you. There's a big green guy there. Um, for for me, Seeds of Doom is one of those stories that is so utterly convincing. And I know it's full of alien seeds and big green monsters and all that sort of stuff. But it's just so incredibly well done that. You actually think it's happened. You actually think it happened during the seventies, and there just happened to be a film camera there to capture it. And 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 I'm 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 quite frankly stunned 
that that I mean I I'm really quite honestly stunned that that you didn't like it. Uh, it's it's funny actually because all of what you said there I agree with. There's nothing that I disagree. The the reason I didn't like this story so much and those on Twitter may already have got this because I tweeted about it at the time is the way the doctor is portrayed. I did not like the doctor in this story. He was completely different as far as I was concerned to the other fourth doctor stories that I hold so dear to my heart. This guy was mm. quite happy to engage in any kind of violence. He was quite happy to do an awful lot of shouting at what I thought was a complete inopportune moments and completely in- inappropriate moments as well. Why the government officials even consider taking him seriously despite his unit credentials, I've absolutely no idea. Um, I, I just didn't like the Doctor. If I was Sarah Jane no. in this story, I'd have, I'd have run. The Doctor in this is very, very different to pretty much all of what we see of the Fourth Doctor, certainly in this era. We, we have a Doctor in the Seeds of Doom that is violent, that is very, very forceful. I mean, he does a lot of shouting in this story. Yeah. A lot, a lot of shouting. I think for me, it really, I suppose, underpins the whole story that... Um, I, I think they even sort of mention it slightly in the extras that that the way the the doctor is portrayed in this, he's someone that needs to be taken seriously. I mean, he he makes a comment at one point, you know, everything on earth will be destroyed, even your pension. I mean, <laughs> yes. it, it it he is a mixture of flippancy and comedy, but but no point in this story can you really not take the fourth doctor seriously. Hmm. He he might have a very glib way of saying things, but he says it with such a conviction that you have to believe this man. And and really, that's, that's one of the things I love about the fourth doctor. He has an instant, I'm taking command of this situation presence. No, I agree. And I think the phrase you've used in the past is, you know, he holds a room or he controls a room. And this particular doctor definitely does that in a way that the fifth or the tenth um, simply do not. And I... Uh, I just didn't like the character that I saw. All of the humour uh, that the Doctor is usually so full of was only used when he needed something from somebody. He's quite happy to make them laugh, you know, and smile when he wants them to come round to his way of uh, thinking. But he's horrible to Sarah Jane. He's not interested in the government officials because he thinks, well, these guys have got to take me seriously because the Brigadier is vouching for me. And I, I just found him a thoroughly dislikable character, and I, I was I was as shocked uh, to, to to find that and feel that way as as you are to hear me say I didn't enjoy the story because of it because everything else works brilliant. Um, the direction on this as well, and it's not very often that I pick up on the direction of uh, of classic stories. Um, certainly, at least, it's very rare that I single it out. I think was brilliant. Um, that house, which, um, again, I've forgotten what it was called now, Alperton or something like that, um, somewhere in Dorset anyway, it was shot beautifully. And the way that they managed to use, you know, what was clearly a limited number of um, nooks and crannies in a very innovative way, that the whole estate felt enormous. And again, on the extras, it shows that the front drive of that place isn't actually very long. And yet they still mm. managed to make it very, very convincing, having, you know, windy, a windy approach by using a different road. I, I just, I love the direction. Um, I, I thought the acting was very strong, uh, particularly from uh, Tony Beckley and uh, also 
um, <laughs> the star of your most favourite British sitcom, Only Falls and Horses, John Chalice. Um, he was, uh, you know, he was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And of course, people only really know John Chalice in this country for Only Falls and Horses. And to see him act such a completely different kind of character uh, to, to Boise and be quite nasty with it was very, very satisfying. It's interesting you talk about the direction of this story because I think there are so many commonalities with certain Tom Baker episodes. I mean, we have to look at the writer, Robert Banks Stewart, yeah. who wrote Seeds of Doom. Um, he also provided the story outline for Talons of Wen Cheyang, and he also wrote the earlier story, Terror of the Zygons. Mm. Now, what is more in common with that is we have the director, Douglas Camfield, who directed both Zygons and Seeds of Doom, script editor Robert Holmes, producer Philip Hinchcliffe. There are just so many commonalities between those stories, and I think even Terror of the Zygons has a more action-orientated doctor in that. I mean, It does, but thinking... he's not as aggressive. Nowhere near as no, aggressive. No, 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 no. Mm. But, I mean, you, you, you can certainly see, if you'll pardon the pun, the seeds of that aggressive doctor yeah. in Terror of the Zygons. I mean, I... I totally agree with you. It's 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 very difficult to defend um, the the fourth Doctor's behaviour in Seeds of Doom, but again, I find it very easy to accept it because it's such a fantastic performance, and it is reasonably in tune with other stuff we see with the fourth Doctor and and the way Tom Baker portrayed that Doctor that that he was the man of authority. Sure, Seeds of Doom bumps it up a little bit more, but um, it it seems to be pretty on par with what we've seen during during that era. Ah, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I can't think of another story where I've taken an active dislike to the Doctor and maybe this is the kind of peak of his aggressive, arrogant uh, persona. Um, you know, Maybe it's the mid-part, if you like, of his regeneration cycle when he's the fourth Doctor. But I, I just didn't take to him and I was surprised by it as well. And, and disappointed, given that every other part of the story was absolutely spot on. We've got what I think to be probably the most Bond-esque villain um, in, in Harrison Chase. Oh, definitely. Um, and he, he was just a joy to watch. A little bit um, strange, I think, towards the last couple of episodes where he just goes completely bonkers. But um, to what extent do you think he was modelled on Goldfinger? Well, I've, I've never really gone that specifically, but I've, I certainly agree with you that um, Seeds of Doom is probably Doctor Who's closest stab at doing a James Bond movie. Mm. Um, uh, Michael on the uh, Tin Dog podcast has actually compared it to an Avengers episode, which which is probably pretty close to the mark as well, That yeah. um, probably more that we, we have an action-orientated story and we have an action-orientated main uh, uh, lead character in, in the form of the fourth Doctor. So it, it is similar to a... Avengers episode but yeah there's there's certainly plenty in there that you can go yeah well this yeah. is something modeled on a James Bond story with this sort of megalomaniac larger than life villain who um wants to take over the world basically in yeah. in his own way shape and form if, if you look at Goldfinger's or Gert Frobe's portrayal and there was a reason why I made that uh, particular comparison um it, it comes across as a seemingly sensible individual at the beginning of the story who gradually descends into this maniac villain and whereas Goldfinger put James Bond on that uh, table with a laser beam in the now infamous scene you've got the doctor being put inside this big composter of course which is the same kind of principles you know it's a slow yeah. death he gradually gets closer and closer towards the blade in this case um, that will that will chop him up and that's quite a 
adult and violent way of killing someone. If, what is also very unconvincing, I feel, is that there is a character who goes through that um, composting machine. And of course, you think of what it would be like for a human being to get crushed in that way. There'd be blood, there'd be crunching of bones, the walls would be sprayed, you know. And after that happens, that particular... Was it Keeler, I think, who went through it eventually? I'm, I'm not sure which character it was. Mm. You know, there wasn't a spot of, of, of um, you know, oh. human flesh or anything. But there was not even a mention, like, oh, clear it up, Scorby. Or nothing along those lines, or clear up the mess. It was just perfectly clean. So that that was a little bit unconvincing, I think. Um well, we should probably move on from there and just talk a little bit about the extras that comprise the uh, entire second disc. Yes. On the first disc, you've got the story itself and you've got the commentary track, which which I'll be up front and say I haven't listened to myself. Have Have you listened to the commentary track? Nope. Oh, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> but the second disc, I think, really is where the gold is. There's an entire disc just devoted to extras. And there's some really, really good stuff on there. The first extra on there is entitled Podshock, quite an original title, that, which is the standard making of, which has the interviews and behind-the-scenes stuff to do with uh, Seeds of Doom. But I I found a lot of more interesting stuff in the other extras. Hmm. There's a fantastic extra, I think, called Playing in the Green Cathedral, which is a a 10 or 15-minute interview with uh, Jeffrey Bergen, who composed the music for this story, as well as Terror of the Zygons. And uh, that that was incredibly fascinating because he went through all the stuff that, uh, or all the instruments that he used on this story, and and you listen to a lot of his compositions, and you realise just how different Jeffrey's contributions to Doctor Who were as as compared to some of the other um, composers during this era. Yeah, true. I mean, it, it's interesting. Not only do you realise how different it was, it's also interesting to realise how different. Um, both your and my view on this release is because I found that probably one of the most boring parts of the DVD. Oh, wow. Um, and it's, I did try it. I, I got about halfway through, and I think given it's only 10 minutes, um, you know, <laughs> I, I just had to turn it off. Uh, I just didn't find it particularly interesting at all. I think if you like the music side of Doctor Who and you're interested in the composers, then it's really right up your street. Um, but for me, mm. it was a little bit too much of a of a niche subject um i think okay. the composer uh, the composer was also in a talking heads um documentary the standard making of documentary and i found him much more palatable and interesting in in that feature i i had difficulty with the whole of this release in all fairness um the one special feature that i really really enjoyed was the stripped for action um of the fourth doctor again i i love that series and this particular segment was recorded I think three years ago, it was in 2008, and has absolutely no bearing on um, the Seeds of Doom whatsoever. Um, And conversely, what I think has probably been the most pointless DVD extra, probably in the history of To Entertain, was the Now and Then segment. And the reason being... James! I'll tell you why it's so pointless. It hasn't changed. You can't tell the difference between that particular manor house now and as it was when it was recorded in 1976, it was exactly the same. <laughs> and I didn't know which era they were actually showing on screen at any one time. All right, well, I, I would totally disagree with you there. I think there's a world of difference between the now and then um, extra on the Seeds of Doom and, say, the one for the War Games, for example. Um, because I watched for the one for Seeds of Doom, and I suppose maybe I have a 
keener eye than you. I, I don't know, James. <laughs> but I, I did notice the difference between the now and then. But one thing I enjoy about the now and then, probably because I don't live in the country and, and, and I don't have intimate knowledge of these particular locations, is it's really nice to see how they've changed over that 30 years. I'm, I'm not after radical changes. But I remember when I watched the War Games one, you know, they showed all these wonderful um, quarries and uh, yeah. like little, little, um, I suppose, alleyways between small mountaintops. And I looked at it mm. and went, oh, that's absolutely fascinating. Oh, I agree. That was hill. brilliant. That was brilliant. And, and the best, I mean, are you... Are you... <laughs> Me. I'm not. I, I, I usually love watching the now and then features. It was just this one. Uh, there's a fantastic oh. now and then segment on the Dalek invasion of Earth as well, and uh, that that's fantastic because I no, live in London. The, but the, the no the 1970s Stanley Homes. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the the War Games ones bored me to tears because it was shots of hills and. This is the hill as it was in 1969, and this is how it is now. Oh, that's but all you've got, it's... all you've got, you see, for the war games is a black and white image uh, with uh, Patrick Troughton running around, you know, and you see a colour image of it, how it is now, and that is like, you know, nearly 50 years on. That's exciting for me. That's interesting. Where you've got oh, a stately yes. home that you can go and visit now, if you're not in Australia, obviously, if you're in the UK. Um, <laughs> And just take a look at, you know, you can go up to the the edge of the gates, you can take a look at, and you think, well, this hasn't really changed. It was only 30-odd years ago um, when this was recorded. I just found it surprising that they spent such a long time focusing on, you know, the doorway that fundamentally is, is, has had a replacement handle, perhaps, and that's about the only difference. Oh, wow. Thing. And that's not with a, a less keen eye. That is just because there's no major difference. I really don't believe there is. Well, I mean, for me, that, that that's what the Now and Then features are all about, because, well, I mean, handles. harking back to the War Games again, um, a lot of where they filmed the War Games originally was a rubbish tip. Um, yeah, and it's now it's been turned into like a housing estate or something. I believe. Yeah, great. Now stuff. that yeah. to that that to me was totally useless. That they showed the rubbish <laughs> ship, then they showed housing estate of some sort. But seeing that this location still exists and there are slight changes to it, that's what thrills me. Because I mean, you can see how they put a hedge here, or they've. Or I mean, they showed that um, statue of Queen Victoria. Yeah, that, that it only moved in, about twenty yards. Yeah, but in the Seeds of Doom, it looked great. They showed the shot in the now and then, and it deteriorated. It was covered in bird poop and all that sort of nonsense. But that's more interesting than seeing, I don't know, how a, a piece of open land is developed into a building or something. Yes. I, yes. I, I think it's fascinating. Imagine if you lived in a housing development where Doctor Who was filmed 40 years ago, you know, where it was open, you know, open area. I just think that's fascinating. Mm. That's much more interesting no. than a statue moving across the courtyard and having a little bit of bird poop on it, you know. I just... <laughs> if I can't see a modern picture of that location and see in my mind's eye Tom Baker running across it or Patrick Troughton running across it, then... A, a now and then feature is useless to oh, me. Wow. Um, I, okay. I can't remember this, the the specific releases, but there have been other ones where um, I think it's even War Machines they did a now and then. Yes, and, I think um, you're right. Yeah, b- b- because they did a lot of running through uh, London you know, streets, yeah. streets basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah near, the t- near the that post to me was tower. fascinating because it showed the differences between the street then 
and now maybe that's the thing you're having a problem with that no i like that like... i'm happy i'm happy with that i really liked it on resurrection of the daleks as well you know it's it's just brilliant seeing like london streets 30 40 years ago and how it's changed yeah. but i'm not interested where the change is far less obvious where it's just mm. you know a slight um, ornamental hedge bin designed where it wasn't there 30, 40 years ago. But yeah, I also accept that um, clearly I think you'll have a different view of this because you are in a different country and of course you do, I don't know whether you've got lots of state homes in Australia, perhaps you have, but this this is um, this is something that is, is fairly commonplace in, um, in, in the country, certainly in Dorset, which is where this particular place is. And I, I just found it not as interesting as, as others. But yeah, I think that's okay. one of the shortest... DVD extras, and that's the one that we've spent the longest talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because you're so wrong, James. <laughs> we'll have to review some more DVDs together, Trev. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's certainly plenty to enjoy on the Seas of Doom D- DVD release. Um, despite what James says, it's a fantastic story. It really is. I think that's all really down to uh, Douglas Camfield's direction. It was the last story he did for Doctor Who, and apparently he went and... Um, prayed or, or swore before the, the altar of God that he would never do a Doctor Who story again. Um, so it, it was his last contribution to Doctor Who. I think Seeds mm. of Doom is a fantastic way to go out. It's a really, really good story. Right, well, that's it for another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. It's time to get out of here, pull up stumps and time to uh, call it a day. But, James, before we go, I know you're champing at the bit to announce the winner of the, uh, I suppose, the Doctor Who calendar competition or the Mm. Christmas present. I don't really know what to do with competition. (laughs) Yes, it is a Christmas present that uh, I didn't know what to do with, but it's still wrapped up. It's brand new. It's in its cellophane. And uh, fortunately, our listeners have been um, quite prolific in their entries as well. We asked a little while ago now, what's the most interesting place that you listen to the Doctor Who podcast? Uh, my goodness, did you come up with some interesting ones? But uh, the the winner um, of this particular competition is Tanya Court, who sent in her entry and said, whilst cleaning the ribs of an Iron Age skeleton in rural Thailand, and in brackets, truthful. Um, so I, I'm going to take that as <laughs> true, because there were several other entries that were clearly not true. <laughs> and um, Tanya, I'm interested to hear what you're actually doing in Thailand with uh, with an Iron Age skeleton and um, why you're not concentrating a little bit more, um, you know, if you're actually having me, Trev and Tom in your ears at the same time, I want to know why. Uh, so please, <laughs> please drop us a note and let us know. What we'll do, because we ran out of time this week, is we'll actually share with you next week some of the other weird and wonderful places that you seem to be listening to us in. So hopefully next week we'll find you in a weird and wonderful place and... Uh, Hope you enjoy next week's episode, episode 63. So until then, James, bye-bye. Bye-bye for now, Joe. And bye-bye from me. See you next week, guys. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.